every brain is plastic? Every patient needs neuro when you're part of a team. Every brain is plastic? Even if you think it's a dream? Everything is better when we mix neuro and ortho together. Side by side, these two win forever. Let's party forever. They are the same when they work in harmony. Every brain is plastic. Every patient needs neuro when you're part of a team. Every brain is plastic. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Therapist in Motion podcast. This is Paul. Happy to be with you. Alongside me is Dan, my usual comrade. Good afternoon. And today we have two special guests. Our CEO, Mr. Tim Spooner, is joining us today, as well as our only NCS certified specialist in our little ortho world, Alicia Delaney. So thank you both for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. So I just want to start, give a little chance to start with Tim and say, first off, happy anniversary, sir. This month, April of 2021, is the 31st anniversary of Spooner Physical Therapy and Hand Rehab. Thank you. Yes, it's uh, it's hard hard to believe it's been 31 years. It seems like it's uh, it's uh, slowed to a crawl and, and gone by extremely fast, but it has been an incredible ride all along. That's awesome. Well, thank you. So I want to harken back then, harken back to the pre-Spooner PT days to you know when Tim first came out of school. Give us a little bit of an uh, intro to... Your first work before Spooner Physical Therapy. So when I went to PT school, I was uh, the typical guy that was going to go into ortho and sports, and I wanted to work in that environment. And when I did some rotations and did some uh, um, shadowing in that, I you know, sports at that time was an isokinetic world. Um, and that, as a physical therapist and a biomechanic uh, person, did not make any sense to me to put strap somebody to a machine and see how fast they could flip their leg back and forth. Uh, plus, as an athlete, I had never found that sitting on the bench was very beneficial. I couldn't really score from the bench or, or play very well. So that never made sense to me. So when I came out, um, I looked for experience uh, to be a real physical therapist, which I found in a, in a traditional neural setting. Um, where the therapists were NDT certified, they were PNF certified, they put their hands on people, they facilitated movement, they they helped people get better and from whatever conditions. And we treated um, significant uh, TBI patients that had been left in beds for months due to problems with the system, to you know people recovering from uh, a stroke that wanted to be very active again. I love it. Thank you, and Alicia. Can you give us a little bit of your background? I know you were a student here, ran rotation, and had a strong neurological uh, or a strong drive to go to a neuro-based setting. What kind of was your initial interest, and where did you decide to take that to? Sure. So when I was in school, I found that I had a passion for neuro right away. Um, I enjoyed it throughout school and throughout a neuro rotation that I did prior to my rotation at Spooner. And I really, I loved everything about neuro. Um, I found a passion for treating patients with TBIs, Parkinson's, CBA, and I enjoyed that a lot. But what I found throughout school and even on my rotations were, was that there was really a, a silo of treating neuro and a silo of treating ortho. 
And a lot of clinicians, I didn't see overlap those two areas. Some of the clinicians that I met who were extremely skilled at treating neuro patients um, hadn't used really any of their orthopedic skills in years. So when things popped up and patients had joint mobility restrictions um, or, you know, pain in, in, you know, with certain movements, it, it was something that they really kind of got stuck with. And vice versa, I saw a lot of orthopedic physical therapists who really didn't have much in the way of neuro skills. They didn't know how to facilitate movements um, or do, you know, any stabilizing PNF patterns. And those things that would have been really valuable to their treatment of musculoskeletal conditions weren't really being used. Um, And I started to see at Spooner that I think there's a lot of overlap and a lot of opportunity for, you know, neuro skills to be used in, in an orthopedic setting. And vice versa, too. But uh, I really found a passion in where those two areas overlap. Well, I like that, especially when you really said, uh, you know, the, the silos that didn't seem to interact with each other. And it, unfortunately, traditionally, it often seems to go that way. We've got your neuro thought process and your ortho thought process. And Tim and I, you've spoken a little bit too before, but the thought that science is science and we need to understand the science of the whole body. How did that help set a foundation for you to successfully build what you developed today as a very, very skilled therapist. Well, I think Alicia said it best that there were therapists that could treat A and therapists that could treat B patients. But what if you wanted to just take care of your community? What if you all, any of those patients would come in? Um, so I didn't want to be that patient that was left or that therapist that was left holding the bag saying I couldn't do something. And at the very basis of everything we do, we train movement. We restore movement, we gain movement, we stabilize movement, and we can put all the science things behind it, but that's what we're doing as movement professionals, as physical therapists, as occupational therapists. And when we do that, there's a there's always this blend of neural and in orthopedic relative uh, skills. Um, but I, I to me, I, I just choose not to use that language um, because there's a person in front of me. And whatever I need to use to help that person, um, I'm going to use. And, and so I found that as I was transitioning from a neural world into more of a uh, outpatient ortho and seeing a lot of spine and, and uh, spine, spine patients, that that neural um, progression was very important, um, that we needed to you know, develop the mobility excuse me, develop, yeah, develop the mobility and stability in that spine to help somebody recover and to help somebody function well and to retrain their muscles after they'd had an injury. Much like you see a child develop, I think patients after an injury need to go back through specific progressions in their motor planning and learning to be able to regain their function. I think what you said there about going back to some of the basics is where, you know, even for me and Paul, we both had PNF from, you know, disciples of Maggie. It wasn't stressed at the same level when we were in our professional program, as I think we both now appreciate after years of probably missed opportunities and then going through additional course sequences to go back to what you just said, Tim, which is, 
after injury, and the evidence is resounding and telling us after injury, there's typically inhibition, right? And there's poor muscles firing sequences. Yeah, you can call it inhibition. You call it splinting. There's all right. kinds of terms we make up for yeah. an impaired movement pattern. So, but yet we often forget how to retrain that firing pattern to, you know, to have a, to reduce inhibition, to reduce splinting, to reduce guarding. And it comes down to utilization of treating the entire person for what they need to get back to, as opposed to treating in silos, as you guys have already alluded to. So I think that that's, you know, I came from the different background where I was ortho first. And then, I mean, not that I didn't have some neuro and PT school. I did, obviously, but not that solid background in the clinical application to then fully integrate it into the orthopedic world. Sure. And if, if you think about it, we may learn uh, traction and compression in the ortho world, traction to help create mobility, compression to help facilitate stability or proximal things. But if I ask Alicia that on a neural basis, we're going to do that same thing. We're going to create some compression in a joint proximally to help get some stabilization so that they get the control before we can progress. And so if I'm treating a, a, you know, a hemiplegic or I'm treating an instability in a glenohumeral joint, wouldn't the concept and the movement and the training be very similar? And we can call it all kinds of different things, but we're going to probably have to put some compression into that glenohumeral joint because it's going to be loose. But I, I would say the same thing of any rotator cuff instability that I have an instability issue. So to me, they're relatively the same when, when you look at it and you blend the two together. Yeah, I think Dan hit the nail on the head, too, when he talked about treating the whole person. Because, you know, Tim, to your point about the silos, you know, you mentioned there's patient A and patient B. And that's a lot of times how we think there's an ortho patient and a neuro patient. But the reality is that. I don't think I've ever treated a patient with Parkinson's who didn't have some kind of orthopedic issue. And I don't think I've ever treated someone, you know, post total knee replacement that had phenomenal motor control either. Um, so often I think that neuro patient is an ortho patient and the ortho patient is a neuro patient. So having those skills and understanding the person as a whole and all of the systems together, like you said, is, is I think really crucial to at least the way that I practice. Yeah. And, and, and you were saying like, how we initially are trained. What if we could go back to that early training, whether that's in school or shortly thereafter as we're coming out, what would we say differently to a young practitioner to get to the thought pattern of where you're at today? That's a great question. I, I think that that's what some didactic programs have started to do is do integration of labs and focus on a patient and integrate the neuro and integumentary and cardiopulm and neuromusculoskeletal at the entire at the same time focused on a patient rather than and this is no nothing against the programs that haven't done that where you just learn them in isolation you learn your special testing for the shoulder and then you get tested on your special testing for your shoulder. And then the practical exam is on the special testing for the shoulder and finding a, a, an appropriate immediate diagnosis of that patient, which, okay, great. You found a diagnosis, but 
do you have any ideas on how to intervene and actually treat this person? So I think some programs that have started to have integrated labs at the didactic level, we will probably see a change in how that person comes out of school with the, the appreciation of utilizing all of those skills together. They're obviously going to need some refinement, right? right? Because of lack of pattern recognition and volume of repetition for themselves and their clinical thought process. But I think that that's what we're going to see. I think that's what didactic programs have started to make a modification to based on things that we all experienced when we were in school and have heard young practitioners, yeah, you know, I, address. I, I, I can remember, uh, you know, treating in a phasic uh, shoulder or a phasic uh, CVA um, with shoulder instability. And um, you learn very quickly to throw your special tests out the window because the, you know, the, the ability to communicate was just not there to give me the feedback that a special test is supposed to garner. Right. So you, you, you have to, again, I think it's, you know, we've kind of said that a couple of times, but um, you have to blend the two together and treat the person. So then you brought up kind of a great question there. Like it would be nice to be able to go back and, and help people understand early the benefit of putting all these thought processes together. But for those therapists that have been out for a year or two now, or, or even more so, what advice would the two of you have for how to maybe garner some additional foundational knowledge? If let's just say they're going the traditional orthopedic route, uh, and that's where the baseline education in Connet has gone, how would you help get them integrated into putting all the thought processes together? I think there are a lot of great resources out there. Um, you know, revisiting things like PNF that we all learned in school, like Dan said, but really are applicable to, you know, all sorts of situations far beyond just your typical neurodiagnosis. Um, I think there's a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of coursework out there. I've personally attended the Institute of Physical Arts PNF course um, and found a lot of value in that because they really do a good job tying, you know, a, a neuro principle into daily orthopedic treatment. Um, so if you're primarily ortho, I think something like that's probably a good route. But there's a lot of resources out there, I think. I, I agree. The if I'm going to be proficient at human movement, then I should I should study anything related to human movement. Any coursework, whether it's PNF or NDT um, or applied functional science for that matter, is looking at facilitating things of movement and understand what you're studying and how it relates to human movement, which is what you're going to be doing as a professional. And if you're doing that, and you understand what PNF is, you're going to understand the significant strengths that it has, um, but probably some limitations for treating certain types of maybe athletes or, or something of that nature. The same can be, can be said of virtually anything, but any of those disciplines, if you take them to a deep level, you will be able to link across them various key components that are consistent amongst all of them. And so we, we could look at that and say, all right, I need to grab, I need to develop mobility and, and then stabilize it. You know, and, and those kind of things are consistent. They may have different terminology because they are a American phenomena and have been marketed. <laughs> um, however, this, the, what they're basically attempting to do is consistent. Yeah, I think that, you know, Paul and I have had similar continued education journeys and the deeper I've 
delved into different thought processes, the more alike they are than different, right? And right. I think that's there's what, linkage. There, there's there's a ton of linkage, right? And you're you're quickly applying a principle that may be rooted in PNF that has a little bit of Maitland or Syriax in it with a little bit of applied functional science with a little bit of something else, right? And why? Because that's what the patient needs. And so that that would probably be my biggest recommendation back to myself or those individuals who are a few years out would be don't be afraid to go deep and then go deep in something else and then go deep in something else and then go deep in something else because you will then quickly realize, again, like Tim said, the links between all of those schools of thought. Why? Because at the foundation of it, we're treating human movement, right? And we're assessing human movement and we're addressing human movement. And what do all those thought processes have in common? Human movement. Yeah, one of, one of the phrases I would encourage our profession to maybe reanalyze is we always hear uh, – younger clinicians, students uh, coming out, and I want to put more tools in my toolbox. I want to put more tools in my toolbox. And I, I, it's a great analogy, but they get a little stymied when I ask them, well, what is your toolbox? So if you think, I'm going to put all these tools in what? And all these tools need to go into some type of overarching treatment idea or philosophy that you are incorporating. And you can put these tools in there, but if you don't have a tool box per se, which is your way of thinking and movement, um, then you have a whole bunch of tools scattered on the floor, which are useful. But if you need to pick them up and go into another room, it's really cumbersome. But if you have a box, something that they all fit within that you can utilize over and over again, then you become very um, transformational and, and able to take that and see whatever comes in the room next. Well, I like that, especially speaking to the toolbox. I'm, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what is the philosophy then behind what we should do. We speak so much about being movement professionals here and movement specialists, but I'm interested to hear your specific thoughts and words on what that means to you and especially how that neuro basis helped you integrate and understand how to function at that level. We all should be functioning at as therapists. True. I mean, being a, being a human movement specialist is just that. Um, I should be able to see a young child that comes in. I maybe I should be able to see an orthopedic patient that comes in. I should be able to see a patient with a neurological dysfunction. Now, how deep I take those skills and how much I learn um, and really understanding what that patient's goals are um, are where I'm going to be challenged. So, for instance. I may not have high-end sports performance training. Um, I know where I can get my patient, but maybe if they're going to compete at a professional level, I need to make sure that they have a resource for that. Um, I could say the same thing on a, on a very involved neurological peds. There is a set of skills where someone's gone deep into that. But for the majority of what I'm going to see, I feel perfectly comfortable that my blend of neural and um, applied functional science and manual skills, it allows me to effectively treat somebody and help them attain their goals. 
Well, and I think too, you know, Tim talked about being kind of a generalist and being able to see all of those different types of patients, but even for clinicians that are really specialized, I mean, if you are a really high level sports performance therapist, or you are a traumatic brain injury specialist, the reality is that all of your patients are not the same. And every person that comes in is going to be a different, you know, new challenge. So for me, I think even, even in the most specialized circumstances, Having a well-rounded approach to, to care helps you come up with, you know, approaches to take with patients who don't present like the last one you saw, because they're not all going to present the same. So having that well-rounded approach um, and background, I think, helps, you know, even the most specialized individuals. And I think we have to be cognizant, too, of the settings we're in, where, you know, the patient's goals may supersede the setting I'm in, and that's, and that's perfectly okay um, if someone's in, say, an acute hospital setting or is in, a, in an outpatient environment, uh, but the person wants to really, you know, perform a certain skill better, there are multiple ways to, to connect with our peers, to connect with our colleagues if we are truly concerned about helping that individual get to the best place that they can be. And a lot of that is getting over our own insecurities, if you will, and doing what's best for the patient. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I've, I have spent, you know, five and a half, six years treating patients, you know, in an orthopedic setting where 30% of my patients had a neurodiagnosis, Parkinson's, CVA, TBI, spinal cord injury. Um, I saw a little bit of everything, which has been fantastic for, you know, clinical growth and just building the caseload that really fuels my passion. But I've also referred out a lot of neuro patients, you know, patients that, just didn't quite fit the setting or didn't get the benefits that they needed coming to our particular atmosphere. I mean, there are circumstances where someone needs additional hands on them for safety, or they need a light gate machine or, you know, something to that effect to really succeed and see their, you know, meet their goals. But it's also been a really valuable setting for a lot of patients too. I mean, I think that there's something to be said for openness, the high functioning outpatient orthopedic environment for our high level patients with Parkinson's disease or, you know, multiple sclerosis, um, you know, seeing, seeing them in that setting is, is much more valuable, I think, than the traditional outpatient neuro hospital setting. Yeah. Many years after I had transitioned into outpatient, um, I had a personal experience, uh, going back into the neuro world where I had an older brother that had a had a, had a significant stroke at age 41, um, who happened to be not only my mentor, my older brother, um, but was also a physical therapist. And I, I, I got the ability or I had the, the ability to go back with him and go through that process with him and examine the healthcare industry as a whole and really ask some hard questions like, what are we really trying to achieve and accomplish here? And um, it was a, it was a it was a really really tough thing as a professional to go through from the aspect that I didn't feel the passion from my brethren as much as I thought I I would when they had a day, when they had an extremely young healthy otherwise healthy individual who was motivated to get better um, and they didn't want to take him to where he wanted to go. "Quote unquote," the the first family meeting we went to, 
their goal was to get him to transfer to a wheelchair so he could stay in a nursing home at age 41. <laughs> no, it was it was not okay. And he, he happened to have a, you know, a, a supporter in myself, but also my sister, who's a speech pathologist, um, sitting on the other side of the table. Um, so it was, it was, uh, you know, it, he ended up living independently, driving, um, doing things that at that day and time that you, you know, he was a complete um, right paraplegic with an aphasic at that time. You know, they couldn't see the, they couldn't see the future, whether it was their experience or whatever, but they certainly didn't challenge the environment uh, as much as they could either. You know, Tim, I think that that story that you just shared kind of highlights what you and Alicia both talked about previously of all too often we think of care and then care stops and then maybe care starts again and then care stops. And sometimes in our profession, we don't have the best ability to communicate across different domains and different specialties from inpatient to outpatient, acute to inpatient, right? Like it just doesn't happen as well as I think we all want it to happen. And I know there's instances where it happens extremely well. You know, previously on podcasts, we've talked about, you know, kind of like our role in physical and occupational therapy across the spectrum of health from, you know, if we put it on a number line from negative 10 to 10, and, and Alicia said it perfectly that all too often, we think of the neuro side on the negative end of the spectrum and the ortho side on potentially part of the negative end of the spectrum into the positive end of the spectrum. And as I think about what we have talked about today as a group, that spectrum is blended from the get-go, right? You're going to treat a patient who has a condition, but you're going to treat that patient. Because they may walk in one day, regardless of their underlying condition that they came to see you for, with pain or with a sense of instability, or that they just had a trip and a stumble and they're an otherwise healthy individual, right? So if we think about blending the ortho and the neuro world across the spectrum, regardless of the setting that we're in, whether we're in an outpatient ortho setting like we are here at Spooner, or we're in a different setting, which some of our listeners are, how can we change our thought process with your analogy of the toolbox, which I think is brilliant, to come back to our overall foundation. I, I think you, you just you just mentioned it, and it is it is a layered approach. So we have a movement spectrum that we're working on, whether that's the minus ten, the plus ten, or or it's uh, the beginning to the end. Um, it, it really you choose choose whatever you want, and then we layer in our our skill set. We layer in our setting and some of the limitations of possibly the environment we're in. Um, we may even layer in some of the clientele and the insurance limitations and access that they have to care. Um, we can layer in all of these things, um, but at the very core, you still have that patient in front of you. You have to do what's best for that patient and, you know, and, and understand that sometimes you are the best patient, best thing for that patient today. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not someone out there that may be more skilled, but you are the best thing for that patient today and and maybe in your environment. And so own it and do the best thing you can. Um, and and when we do that, we're going to get the experience too. We're going we're gonna to learn from that. And, you know, I didn't understand when I was 
doing my neural training, what how it would benefit for me. I, I had no idea that when I started doing back stabilization exercises and stuff, and we were doing things, I'm going, this looks a lot like what I was doing with some NDT and some PNF stuff. <laughs> and, and you start to marry that. But did I know it at the time? No. Trust the process. Trust your instincts. Know that you're smart enough to understand if you're making a difference, especially if you're connected to that patient. Well, Alicia, Tim, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's always insightful to have a different approach and thought process to both challenge Paul and I and help us with the patients that we see every day. Hopefully it does the same thing to our listeners. If you have any questions, comments, uh, or feedback, please do not hesitate to email us at therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thanks and have a great day. <laughs>